Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. Join me, George Norrie, in Indian Wells, California, May 29th to June 1st for the Contact in the Desert UFO Conference, an epic weekend of exploration into UFOs, ancient civilizations, crop circles, and so much more. Over 150 lectures, panels, workshops, and events with leading experts Paul Hellyer, Linda Moulton Howe, Nick Pope, Emery Smith, Stephen Greer, Russell Targ, Doc Wallach, Leslie Kane, and more. Get your tickets at contactinthedesert.com. It's time to make contact, contactinthedesert.com. We have a jam-packed episode for you today that is a first of a series. Bree, what are we talking about? We're going to talk about remote viewing. We're going to dive deep into it. We're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about the history. We're going to talk about some very important people in it. And we're going to talk about even more in upcoming episodes. So far, I think we might do three episodes. We'll see how it goes, but there's just so much. Yeah, three, maybe four. There's a lot of information inside of here, and so buckle up, guys. This is going to be a ride. And it's extremely fascinating. Even researching it was like, wow. There's just so much to it, and it's all so interesting, so we have to share all of it with you guys. And it's definitely one of those topics that's a rabbit hole that we can go down and goes into a million different offshoots. And a lot of people are going to wonder, you know, remote viewing, you guys do a podcast about aliens. Like, what the hell, May? What kind of connection's going on? Well, we'll get there. Trust me. Let's just start with defining what remote viewing is for some people that haven't heard about it before. And it's basically the ability to sense and perceive information about a distant target, a location, a person, or an event, regardless of any separation in time and space. Hence the name remote viewing. You're viewing something remotely. In remote viewing, time and space ultimately has no effect. It's almost like it doesn't exist. There aren't any barriers in the information. It can be in the past, in the present, or even in the future, which is quite interesting. So it's basically that you're gathering information mentally where otherwise you wouldn't have any prior knowledge or even access to that type of information on the target. And remote viewing falls into the psi category. So parapsychology, psychic phenomena, ESP, which is exosensory perception. And it also bleeds into what some consider as astral traveling or an OBE, an out-of-body experience. But although the ability might sound like it's special or it's exclusive to people that we consider to be psychically gifted, it's actually not. Remote viewing is a trained ability, and it could be taught to anyone, which is another thing that I find extremely fascinating. It's very down-to-earth, even though it sounds like something out of a sci-fi story. I've heard it kind of explained to, like, you know, playing an instrument. Technically, everyone can do that. You can pick it up, and you can learn, and you can hone those skills in. Some people are more natural at it. Some people, it takes more time. But this is definitely some sort of a skill that you can learn. And we're actually going to be doing some experiments with this and our audience to see who out there can remote view. And at the end of the episode, we're going to put in a little game to kind of to start to test this. And we'll be doing it every episode. We're going to test everybody's abilities there in the audience to remote view. So stay tuned to listen for the target. 
Why don't you tell me how it is something that's obtainable? Well, the whole question of how could this even be a thing? And I think other than just accepting psychic phenomena as just something that is, that's easy for us to do, you know, it's just something that could happen in our mystically complicated reality of existence. But it could have something to do with that idea of quantum entanglement. And I know in our astral traveling episode, we did talk a little bit about quantum entanglement. And I think it might actually have something to do with this type of phenomena. So when particles become entangled, they remain connected, right? No matter the distance apart. When you experiment on one of the particles, the other particle will instantaneously react. Whatever action is done to one of the particles affects the other. Once there's a connection, which in this case it's entanglement, between an electron or a photon, and actually some people consider that we come down to just photons, just particles of light, which is also a reason how this could be possible. But it seems that there's an energetic connection between those two particles, and they're accessed no matter the distance of time and space. There's always that type of connection once they're entangled. So it doesn't matter when or where, it could be on the other side of the globe, but once there's that intent for it to be connected, it is. And so whatever happens to one particle, it will react to its other entangled partner. And this has been proven by science. There's pictures of it happening. You can look that up on the internet and you can see all the different slides that this is something that is proven. And it also goes into, you know, like the double split experiment that we talked about, where, you know, a particle can basically be in a state of all possibilities, but until it's observed, there's a certain outcome. Almost like that intent. Once there's a mind that's putting an intent to that particle, then it makes it happen. So with that being said, it leads the idea of consciousness entanglement. So when there's an intention of the viewer on a target, then that information will instantaneously interact with the entangled target information. And it's the same type of situation, no matter what the circumstances are, time, space, whatever. Once your intent is on that type of information, it's instantaneous. It's like information and consciousness is always available. And this goes back to even the, the fundamentals of CE5, right? The CE5 protocols, the whole idea of everyone focusing on being this beacon of light at a certain point when they do the global CE5s. It's everyone putting their intent on making this sort of peaceful contact, but imagining yourself like a beacon of light and that overall the globe will be shining, glowing. So I believe the idea is that if we really are in this, inside this type of quantum consciousness, like this one quantum mind, consciousness in general, then if we just have the intent and focus that we should be able to plug into information that is always accessible to us, no matter the distance, the time, the space, who you are, no matter what, that that conscious information is always available inside that type of space, which is our existence. Does that make sense? Yes. It's one of those things that I believe, and we've looked into the whole quantum entanglement thing, like I said, in astral traveling, and it makes sense. But then when I reflect, and I'm trying to explain it in a way that could make sense with this, it's really difficult. And I honestly believe that even scientists and the whole, like, all 
all types of quantum theory realms. I feel like it's even hard for them. Like they understand, but yet a big part of the whole subject is that we don't understand and we're trying to make sense of it all. And that's why there's all these different theories inside, you know, all kinds of quantum theories. It's like everyone's trying to make sense of it all. So really, do we ever really understand it? To me, it's like something that I think I understand more in the spiritual, like metaphysical realm. That's why it makes sense to me is because I look at it through that filter with the idea that if I focus my intent, then I have ability to that information. It just makes sense to me that we're all a part of something, no matter how we can define that. And if we focus that we do have access to all types of information. Well, I think really what you're saying is at the end of the day, your mind is a very powerful tool. And if you can figure out how to hone it and use it, the things it can do are incredible. Absolutely. If this is a possibility, which I believe it is, and it's been taken very serious by governments, which we'll get into. But I mean, I just feel like if anyone knew that you could do this, we would use it more, (laughs) you know, like in all aspects of life. It's kind of like this hidden thing that's not so hidden, but unless you pay attention, you don't know that it exists. Well, and that's something we're going to talk about in upcoming episodes as well. We're going to definitely talk about this. You know, the program was ended. A lot of it was declassified when it comes to the government side of things. And why was that? There's a lot of opinions out there. Are we still doing it? What's happening? So we'll we'll get to that. But let's maybe roll back the clock just a little bit. And really to understand all of this, start kind of back at the beginning and see where these roots of remote viewing even come from. You know, it didn't just happen overnight. Remote viewing has its start way back in the days before Christ. We're talking B.C. area. (laughs) (laughs) Bringing it back to Jesus. (laughs) We're talking B.C. era. We're talking, I mean, when there was just like sand everywhere and everyone (laughs) wore weird robes. We're going all the way back to that time. So there was this king, and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name because who really knows how to pronounce things from, you know, this area? But it's Kerosis, the king of Lydia. And we're going to talk about him and the Oracle of Delphi. So in an area that now is what we would call Turkey, the king felt this like really kind of heavy presence of threat of war from the Persians who are surrounding him. And back in those times, how you kind of figured out strategy is you went around and you talked to like these spiritual people and oracles and these people Mm. who were really close to the gods and stuff like this, who gave premonitions. So he sent out all these messages to the leading oracles in Greece and in Libya with kind of a test inside of it. And he told all these messengers exactly 100 days from when they left his castle to deliver this one specific question to the oracle and write down their answers and bring it back. Exactly 100 days later, all these messengers opened up this letter and it just said, what is the king doing at this very moment? So a few days go by, messengers start coming back in with all these letters and the king is super excited to open them. And all of them are a bunch of bullshit until he finally comes to one from the Pythian priestess of Delphi. And she wrote back and this is what she wrote inside of the letter. It's a little poem. I can tell how many grains of sand lie at the bottom of the sea and those who cannot speak can communicate with me. Now I feel the scent of a dish that is hot. Lamb and tortoise boil in a big bronze pot. Weirdly enough, that's exactly what the fucking king was doing. He, in his mind, had this great plan. He's like, I'm gonna do something so particular that no one's gonna be able to figure it out. I'm gonna make tortoise and lamb stew inside of a bronze pot. 
Like, how random is that? No one does tortoise? that Tortoise? That sounds gross. That's what I'm saying. It's like, not tortellini. No. This is a freaking turtle. Yes. But it was so weird that someone would do that. That is very particular, for it, sure. Like, she'd be like, oh, like, maybe a turkey because we're in Turkey or, like, some stew, you know what I mean? But mm, So this question tortoise. kind of comes up, and it's going to come up a lot, I think, in this when we, we come to remote viewing. Is this some sort of psychicness? Was she remote viewing there? Was she able to see it? Was she, you know, reading somebody's mind? Like, who knows exactly what was happening? But it's this very first kind of written record of, like... Remote viewing, for sure. Basically remote viewing. So it has a very interesting roots that go back way beyond time. So this is obviously something that we've been able to do since the beginning of mankind, realistically. It has to be since the beginning of... Yeah. Exactly. So remote viewing didn't really come into the media until realistically the 1990s when a lot of the stuff about Stargate Project was declassified. And don't worry, Stargate Project is going to have its very own episode and we'll dive deep into that later. But it really kind of starts in the 1930s when a lot of scientific experiments were going on with telepathy and clairvoyance. And that's really the foundation of remote viewing is, you know, talking about psychics, mediums, oracles, these kinds of things. So that's when the research really started. But when it really got popping and remote viewing really became a thing was in the late 1960s to early 1970s when they were doing a lot of out-of-body experiments in New York at the American Society for Psychical Research. And this is going to point us in the direction right now of our first superstar of the episode, <laughs> Ingo Swan. Ingo Swan was a psychic artist, author, and, you know, basically the father of modern remote viewing. He was born in the Colorado Rockies, and he has a BA in biology. In Korea, he served on the staff of Commander of the Pacific Forces, and he worked for the United Nations from 1958 to 1969. And from 1958 to 1969, he worked at the United Nations. During the 1970s is when he jumped full-time into parapsychological and psychoenergetics research. And this is really where his journey with the American Society of psychical research kind of begins and we're going to play a short clip right here of him talking about how he even got into the whole psychic kind of thing in new york in 1970 i had a very good friend named zelda supli who had worked in publishing and was a first class editor and at that time director of the erickson educational foundation and she was a big earth mother type, but her main, main claim to fame was that she and her husband had owned three nudist camps during the 40s and 50s. And as a result, she knew everybody in the world because everybody came to her nudist camps. And she was wonderful, and I just, just adored her, and I hung out a lot of times in her apartment for and Anyhow, she uh, was one of these types that everybody who's outside of society comes to talk to, you know. And so she had a wide circle of friends, and amongst those was a young man and wife who, uh, this was just at the period when infrared photography became available to the public. And so they were running around with cameras in, loaded with infrared film, and they wanted to see if infrared film could catch psychic phenomena like ghosts and things like that. So anyhow, one day I was at Zelda's and these two came and uh, they said, uh, we've been trying to find people who can produce energies that might uh, record on, on the film. And um, so Zelda said, why don't you try Ingo? So 
So I went with these two into Isabella's bedroom and the brakes could be closed, so it was perfectly dark. There was no light in there and I sat in this chair and these two had set up their camera and aiming it at me and they said, uh, all right, Ingo, do your thing. <laughs> and I said, well, um, what is that thing I'm supposed to do? I didn't have a clue. So they said, well, create some energy in your hands. So I said, okay, I'll try that. <laughs> so I stuck my hands out and imagined energy in them and things like that. And I said, well, I've, what else can I do? And they said, uh, well, make a ball of light above your head. So I did that in this totally dark room and things, and then we did a lot of other things. So then the film had to be developed, and that took about four days back then. And then they came back with, here I am sitting in this chair with the light balls in my hand, and you could see them, they're sort of half moonlight and half moonlight, moonlight, and they lit up the underside of my face and things in this dark room. <laughs> and you could push me over with a feather. I'm leaning on this. <laughs> So then a really nice one was that imagine the ball of light over your head, you know. Well, it wasn't a big ball of light, it was a little tiny ball of light about three feet over my head where I said I was trying to do that and everything. And then uh, a lot of the film didn't show anything, and, uh, but there were three or four other ones that were really good. So this came like a bombshell in, in Manhattan at the, at the edges of the parapsychology community. And um, even Stanley Krippner said, this is wonderful. Do you, have you ever heard of Stanley Krippner? Well, he says everything is wonderful, but I think he really meant it in this case. <laughs> and uh, so then that was in June. It was hot as hell in New York. And then it came in September. Now, Zelda was a, uh, a Virgo, as I am, and for many years she'd been holding a Virgo birthday party for all of the Virgos that she knew, you know, because everybody hates Virgos, you know, they're so <laughs> pissantish, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so she invited them all, and, and so a lot of them came. And then I, that was the party I met. Um, 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 Gosh, you see, I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, I met, um, damn, uh, who was it I met? <laughs> no, I already knew Stanley Kipner. Yeah, um, Bob Monroe, I met Bob Monroe. And then I met the plant research guy. What was his name? Clive Baxter? Clive Baxter. I may not get through this lecture. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, Bob Monroe was, I mean, everybody was in awe of these tacky little photographs, you know. And um, everybody said, do you want to try it again? I said, I don't think so, you know. Anyhow, uh, I got along with Bob Monroe really well, and we became lifelong friends until he died. And then there was Cleve Baxter, who, um, do you remember him? He, he had a big um, lie detector school in Manhattan, and he was a consultant to the CIA and the FBI lie detecting systems. 
and he trained their personnel to do this and everything. So he had a lot of lie detectors, you know. It was a, a lab that had about, oh, I don't know, eight or nine rooms to it. So he had taken uh, his lie detector things and hooked them up to plants to see if plants would uh, show anything on the output of the lie detector. And the plants did. They showed an electric potential thing going up and down like this and everything. And then he said, well, is this a consciousness or is this just electric potential in these plants and everything? So he got the idea, he pulled out, uh, he got a match and burnt the leaf of one of them. And there was this big spike <laughs> that occurred on, on the readout. So the plant had responded to this burning. And uh, he was a kind man and, and he didn't want to really burn his plants. And, and then he found out if he just thought he was going to burn his plant, that there was a big spike. And, uh, and so he was having people come in and uh, think about burning the plant leaf and watching the thing on the lie detector output, you know. So anyhow, at Zelda's party, he uh, was a very shy guy and he'd gone into the kitchen and gotten in this little space between the refrigerator and the wall and there were several women who were trying to jump his bones back there and uh, everything, and he was talking plant and they were talking about how beautiful he was. Anyhow, I, I sort of muscled in, I said, you know, I'd really like to see this plant stuff. And he says, well, come on up to my lab. So he's there, he's doing a bunch of experiments with things, and one of the things that he does is he gets kind of bored with this, like, everyday boring-ass research that they're doing. It's like the same thing every time. He's, like, over it. He's like, this is easy. I need something more challenging. And he starts to suggest maybe some different experiments go on. And these are the very kind of early beginning first experiments of remote viewing. Now, Ingo has been to a ton of conferences. He's done a lot of speeches. He was somebody who was out there who was constantly talking about this. So going and listening to his entire story is super easy to do on the internet, and we're not going to do that here. Mostly what we're just going to talk about is just how he got started in it and leading up to other characters that we're going to introduce that round out this whole entire story because this thing is a saga. You can read some of his books. He has some great ones out there. There's even a movie about one of his books called Starfire. Have you ever seen it, Brie? Sounds familiar, but I feel like maybe I have not. Well, maybe that will be our research or for this next episode is to, to watch that before we come back so we can discuss it. To really keep this story progressing along, we're going to move on to our next big character. And we're going to talk about Dr. Hal Putoff of the Stanford Research Institute, which actually isn't really called the Stanford Research Institute anymore. Even in the early beginnings before Stargate Project started, they actually dropped the Stanford and they were just known as the SRI because Stanford and them have like a little divorce. But that's what it really stands for, SRI. Yes. Stanford. But it doesn't go by Stanford anymore because of a lawsuit. So a lawsuit? Yeah, they they Stanford like dropped them. They were, like, they were no longer they? sponsoring them anymore. So they were like, we're done. They didn't want to be known for it. Yeah, no. Mm -mm. But they're still playing those type of games, though. Well, they do that a lot with doing, a lot of places. Yeah. St Stanford was the one that did all the um the medical work for the At Atacama mummy. mummy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the end, was like. Mm, think it is anything when first they were on the fucking serious movie like uh yeah this is weird and then well, they, later they were like mm, maybe it's not so yeah, i'm but, like i don't trust you but we've also talked about that in plenty of episodes where it's like these labs and stuff everything's like cool they're yeah. like yeah 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 and in the end it's like no mm. 
just like Project Blue Book, that whole thing is mm-hmm. like, yeah, 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 yeah. And in the end, they're like, so mm, swamp gas. we're going to do a whole panel to conclude what's really been done here. And we're going to say it's been nothing. I'm so sick of it. One foot in, one foot out. Anyway. Hallie. Hallie put off. Now he is in um, TTSA. I know. He's like the biggest character. I know. TTSA. We'll talk about that. Pooty. Pooty, pooty. So Dr. Hal Putoff has a PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford. He invented tunable lasers and electron beam devices. And just in the prime when all this remote viewing was starting, he released a book called The Fundamentals of Quantum Electronics. He was known for alternative approaches to general relativity and quantum mechanics, which is what steered him in this like psychic area. Do you think he was a procrastinator and he would put off his homework? Ayo. <laughs> That's so stupid, but I thought of it. That joke really put me off. <laughs> <laughs> so here's an interesting fact that I found out about him. About up until this time, basically, did you know that he was heavily involved in the Church of Scientology? Ew. Yes. Garbage. I had no idea. Yeah, in the Wait, late up until now? No, no, no. Up until up he until the whole remote viewing thing started basically. Oh, he was yes. jumping on couches so with in, Tom Cruise and then he was like, "I'm out." Yeah, basically. So in the late 1960s, he reached OT level 7, which at the time was the highest <gasps> that you can get. Yes. Now he's an SP? Well, no. And then randomly he completely cut ties with them about the late 1970s, which is right when things were starting to switch over. Exactly. So now he's an SP. Now he's an SP, yes. (laughs) Right now I'm going to play a clip of him talking about this transition into the more psychic side of things, and it all has to do with INGO. It's where it all kind of starts. Now the way the program got started, I had been at Stanford and uh, working on lasers, quantum electronics. I just completed a textbook uh, with a co-author there and <clears throat> on lasers and quantum electronics. And as is always the case, there's nothing like writing a book to realize there's a lot of stuff you don't know. And one of the things I realized I didn't know was whether quantum physics could ever apply to human consciousness, for example. And so I proposed uh, a very modest program and circulated around a proposal to begin to explore quantum aspects of human uh, processing. And a copy of that proposal ended up on a desk in New York. Somebody looked at it. And it turned out that Ingo Swan, who you'll hear more about in this conference and who will be presenting in this conference, happened to see a copy of my proposal. And so he wrote me a letter. And he said, look, if you're interested in quantum physics and consciousness, you shouldn't be working with algae, which is what my proposal had to do with, because they can't tell you anything. (laughs) You should be working with someone like me. You should be working with psychics. Well, actually, I'd never thought of that. At that that point, I'd never even bought a copy of Fate magazine. But along with his letter, uh, he provided some material that indicated that he had successfully done some psychokinesis work at City College in New York. And as a physicist, that interested me. So I invited him to come out to SRI uh, and, and see what he could do. Wait, I have a question, though. Yes. 
Don't you think it's interesting that he would even have a Church of Scientology background being kind of a scientist, though? Yes. Because they're into, like... They're, like, super anti-psychology and, like, yes, yeah. very much so. And yes. it's very... Uh, I feel like Scientology thing, I'm, like, half of it's, like, cool. Like, that's, like, totally metaphysical. I'm into it. And then it goes fucking sideways and off the rail. But I think it's interesting for a scientist with that type of technological background to also be in the Church of Scientology. Or was it just a fake? Do they get those types of people involved in that type of research to maybe probe the whole subject? And then he realized, I'm working on the wrong side, and then drops out of Scientology. I think that you have to remember that at that time, Scientology was very different than what it is today. Oh, like maybe it was actually like cool. Like yes. Lives. But I also think that in true Scientology fashion, what they liked to do was get very important people wrapped mm-hmm. into them. And he was a very important Stanford researcher, you know, even before he really was. You know what I mean? So they like to foster those types of people. And sometimes people who are very, very smart can be very stupid and, and get trapped into things. So who knows what really happened there? It's not something that he talks about a lot and, or gets into, but it's an interesting facet. But then I also think maybe he's a little prone to the cultiness, which is maybe why he came over to the Scientology side and then it morphed into the, you yeah, know, the, gotcha. the physics and then morphed into the more, you know, psychic nature and then morphed into the more alien nature because now he's part of the cult at To the Stars Academy. The cult. Oh my god. Yeah, he's one of we the We don't co-found- know if it's a cult. He's but one of the co-founders. He is one of the co-founders in To the Stars Academy. Now trying to pave the way for the alien route, but I think when we get into Stargate Project, I think it presents plenty of evidence why he would transition into exposing the alien side. Because obviously, if you can remote view anything, you're remote viewing a lot of shit. And his co-worker, also co-founder of all of SRI's research, is Russell Targ. The last player of our episode slash our speaker highlight of the week. Russell Targ is going to be at Contact in the Desert, which is another reason why we want to highlight him because I am so excited about this. Have you watched Third Eye Spies yet? No, I've not. Okay. Well, anyone else can watch it. You guys have Amazon, Amazon Prime, whatever. It's free. And it also dives into not necessarily about Stargate Project a little bit, but it doesn't have the extent to everything they got into. Just kind of goes about it. But Russell Targ is a very known physicist for his remarkable work in the laser. He was a senior staff scientist at Lockheed Missiles and Space Company, and he developed an airborne laser system for the detection of wind shear and air turbulence. He's received two National Aeronautics and Space Administration awards for the inventions and his contribution to the laser and laser communications. And then with his physicist background, he became the co-founder of the SRI research into all of ESP's phenomena. And as an early kid, he was always fascinated with magic. So I'm sure this is where it stemmed from. He considered himself kind of like an amateur magician, And to a certain extent, I think ESP ability can seem like magic, although it's not. And so I think taking his physicist background, trying to convert it into science, he's kind of showing the scientific part of what is considered magic with psychic research. 
So he was a part of this SRI research with Put Off in the 70s, and I don't believe they stopped until the 1990s, 1995. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1995. And so he turned this kind of physicist into psychic researchers, psychic spy for the CIA, and now, now that he's old and retired, he is an excellent author. He's written many, many books about this entire subject, and he travels around the world basically teaching people how to use these protocols for remote viewing. He's really believed now, I think, from seeing the proof of the pudding, that it is a protocol that you can follow, you can teach to anyone, and people do have the ability without even knowing it. And the more that you practice, the better you get. So he's really become an expert in his meditations and learning more about remote viewing and then just tries to spread that to the world. And also just to put to light that psychic phenomena is a real thing. It's not the pseudoscience that some many, I should say, people make it out to be. In fact, he's been very vocal about how much he hates his Wikipedia page. If you ever Google him or go on his website, there's an entire link you can go on, which is basically just his response to Wikipedia about how it's not pseudoscience and how basically pissed off he is the way that they portray the entire subject and tries to enlighten people on like, look, this was serious research. I was funded by the CIA for 20-something years, like 23 years, and it wasn't just Stanford. It was also Princeton. Princeton University had their own research into remote viewing and psychic phenomena for 25 years. And not to mention that, I mean, he's basically debriefed NASA. He's worked with NASA And then you have to think why, which I'm sure we'll get into, but why NASA of all things, why would that be linked to remote viewing? What could they have possibly found in order for NASA to get involved or give two shits about this type of psychic research? I think we'll definitely get into that in the next episode when we talk about the project. So I'm very, very excited that he's going to be at Contact in the Desert this year. I'm sure he's going to dive deeply into this, and I'm pretty sure he's also going to test people in the audience. He's very interested in showing people, even people that are just listening to his short lectures, like, look, just what am I thinking of or what's in this envelope? And basically showing people that you don't have to be this, quote, special psychic with these psychic abilities. We all have it to a certain extent. It's just a matter of practicing, and then you see the outcome get better and better. You can download his app now, actually. It's really simple. It's quite interesting. It's ESP Trainer. It's basically four colors, green, yellow, red, and blue. And you guess what color block is going to show a picture. And then you get better and better and better and better. And it goes in kind of like these um, increments. So I've gone from good beginning to ESP present to good in Vegas. And then I seem to stop there. And And then I'm just like... It's all wrong. It's very interesting. Mm. It is interesting because I see you as somebody who's a lot more uh, psychically tuned than you realize. I think it's also difficult when you're just working with four colors and you're trying to choose. And Josh, for example, he's like, well, there's got to be an algorithm here. There's a pattern. So you just have to think what's the pattern. So that's not really necessarily randomly psychic as it is trying to figure the pattern. But I do find that I get them right. When I like close my eyes and just like breathe for a second, open it, and then the first thing that jumps out to me, I usually get it right. 
So that's something that I've realized in a lot of this research when we're talking about people who remote view is you don't think hard about something. Which is hard not to think you, when you want to get the answer. You want to you want to talk about whatever comes to your mind, the first thing that comes there, not about you stopping and like really concentrating, but just like what happens to come into your brain and that's a very interesting part of it. And that's the very difficult part, which is why there are protocols to this thing because, you know, they'll give you a target or a number or whatever. And I think it's our instinct to want to get it nail on the head. Like you're this, 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 and this. And it's not the case. I think it's more tuning into those subtleties. And that's the hard part for us, definitely. Speaking of that, why don't we play our game, Brie? So tonight we're going to try to test these abilities with you guys. And I think we're going to do this for all three episodes. We're going to give you a target. We are going to draw something on our paper. It is your job to tune in and try to think in your mind's eye what this picture, word, shape, whatever, what is it that we're putting on this page? We will expose this next episode. So you have until then to get your mind straight. So let's start off by saying that it is currently March 6th and it is 6.32 p.m. in California in the studio. And this is the exact moment we want you guys to astral project to. So Brie, draw yours and then I'll draw mine. This is inside of my notebook. We wrote it on a paper. You guys send us a DM, email us. Tell us what you guys think we have on here. It's important to think about maybe the shape or the color. Get in tuned with those types of things. Not necessarily what the overall picture is. All right, this is a good time to jump right into our shout outs. Brandy. Destiny. Vanessa. Danielson. Dylan. Anthony. J Plus. Matt. Bobby. Broad. Simon. Spacey D. AP, Jan, Reese, Melissa, and Shay, Donna, and Jessica from Moonplay Cosmetics. I'm really excited for next week's episode. We're going to be talking about Stargate Project, and it's a lot to happen. The three people who we just talked about today are going to collide and come together, and the whole remote viewing is about to boom and take off, and we're going to get really into different experiments that were done, and how it's being used in our government and how it was used in our government, if it's still being used today, if the project is really still secretly going on. That's the biggest question is if. But you guys should have some type of inkling since this is that one time I was abducted by aliens, we're going to get fucking spacey. So we love you guys so much. Uh, Bobby, go fuck yourself. Mountain View, I hate you more than ever. Please go fuck yourself. (laughs) Brie, why don't you give like, us a- Speaking of Stanford, yeah. go fuck yourself, uh, Mountain View. Yeah. Um, oh, Brie, that's Palo Alto, but they're like Alto, neighbors. Yeah. Brie, why don't you go ahead and give us like a lighter love? Well, I was going to say, I love you all. Take care. Wash your hands and don't touch anything from China. So don't touch anything in the world. Love you. Good night. Goodbye.